Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Welcome to Energetic. Today, the format will be slightly different. It will be a cross-interview or rather a discussion between me and my guests about the Just Energy Project. My very distinguished guests are Dr. Naomi Kratzfeld, who is a professor of social legal studies at the University of Westminster, and Dr. Chris Gill, a senior lecturer in public law at the University of Glasgow. They are both experts of consumer dispute resolution and the different forms of redress, such as the ombudsman model. Naomi, Chris, welcome. Thank you, Marine. It's great to be here. Thanks, Marine. Thank you. So, The Just Energy project we are going to talk about today is a research project looking into access to justice for vulnerable and energy poor people in European countries. Naomi, Chris, we're experts in access to justice and consumer rights. So why did you decide to look specifically at the energy sector for this particular project? Thanks, Marine, for the question. So I think We started off this project because both Chris and me had have an interest in ombudsmen as forms of alternative dispute resolution. And we did studies on ombudsmen. And one part of the claim of ombudsmen is that they are accessible to everyone to resolve disputes that people might have. And one thing that I found in a project I did in, on ombudsmen in different countries is that there was a specific demographic of people who actually used and accessed the ombudsman, which was those who are middle-class, well-educated, in most cases, white males, which left the big question as to if ombudsmen are accessible for everyone, why is only a certain part of the population accessing them? And then Chris and me got together for this, do this big research project on looking at why more vulnerable people don't access ombudsmen and we chose the energy sector as a case study because there are actually ombudsmen in Europe that specialize on energy and helping energy consumers. So that's why we focused on this area. Yeah, I'll just, I mean, just just a little bit, just that, um, I mean, in terms of choosing energy as a case study, I mean, I think there's particularly interesting aspects to the energy market where there are quite high levels of vulnerability and then also specific issues around um, energy poverty. So I think one of the reasons why it was kind of a good idea to choose energy as a case study is that a lot of the things Naomi's just talked about were really playing out in a quite acute way and were really quite serious problems in the energy market. So there's very high levels of vulnerability, it's very high levels of potential disadvantage as a result of energy poverty. So it just seemed like a really logical place to actually cite our study and to look at ADR in that context. It's also an area where um, ADR and ombudsman have really grown quite a lot so that most of the disputes now are going to ombudsman or to other forms of ADR rather than going through more traditional routes, um, for example, through, through courts. So, so yeah, so in many ways it sort of reflected all of those kind of overlapping interests which Naomi talked about were really playing out in energy. 
Okay, great. And what did you do you identify along the way? It's really a tricky question because I know because I worked on the project and you might have questions for me too, but uh, what was the most interesting findings for you guys? So I'm just thinking because it was such a, a big project, it was three and a bit years and we looked at, at five different European countries. And I think to, to start off where, where Chris just stopped about... Um, talking about vulnerability and energy poverty in, in that sector and seeing how people actually weren't accessing the ombudsman. So I think one of the main and most interesting findings was that we discovered that rather than people who are vulnerable and live in energy poverty, rather than them going to, to ombudsman for help with their problems that might be related to, to bills or not being able to pay for the energy, access energy, they actually sought help from their more local space, local communities, if that was town halls, if it was neighbours recommending things, or if there was charities. We found some examples where in GP surgeries, there would be signposting to, to ombudsman and help and support. So it was very interesting that where we started off the project trying to look at why people didn't access ombudsman to solve their problems, to then go further into the granular detail of the local. But we found these amazing local initiatives in different countries set up in different ways to actually help those who, who are vulnerable and live in energy poverty. So for me, I think that was one of the main findings, which is interesting because we set out to do something quite different. And then, then we found this as an, as an added bit of information. Yeah, I would I would completely agree with that. I mean, I think that um, taking a much broader view of, of access to justice, because I think one of the, the sort of reasons we wanted to look at this is that, you know, ADR and ombudsman are often seen as a kind of solution to the access to justice problem. If you create ADR, if you allow people to have a route to get redress, which isn't through the courts, this will somehow solve access to justice and vulnerable people and excluded people will all of a sudden be able to get something which they weren't able to get before. And I think it's very clear that actually you need to have a much broader concept of access to justice. So one of the things that we argue in, in the book based on the data we gathered in this project is that you need to look beyond that. So part of that is looking at the local level that Naomi's just been talking about. And then the other really interesting finding from my perspective was the importance of looking at what's going on within energy companies themselves energy uh, consumers obviously have a relationship with their energy supplier. They are being supplied with energy and therefore they already have a relationship with the supplier and, and access to them in a way that they might not have access to other formal institutions. So again, part of what we're saying in the book is that if you could get energy suppliers to do more to make sure that if a problem arises, if a complaint arises, they're actually resolving it straight away, then maybe you wouldn't need ombudsman, you wouldn't need courts, you wouldn't need external people to get involved. You could actually provide justice, I guess, at the source. So I think that's another, the interesting findings really that, or, or interesting arguments anyway, that the more stuff you could do to help energy suppliers deal with complaints better at that initial stage when a problem arises, then the more likely you are to be able to get access to justice for vulnerable and excluded groups. So Chris, to rebound on that, do you think that having processes, like internal processes within companies designed 
for the consumers and with the consumers at its heart would be the thing making the difference, like having less complaints, having people a little bit more feeling that they can turn to somebody and they just can knock the door and will get all the respect that they were kind of asking for. Because that's one also of the issues with vulnerability is about uh, people are vulnerable. They don't feel respected in when they are facing an issues or, or maybe they will feel that their, their complaint or their, their problem is not legitimate. It doesn't interest anybody. So do you think that having like processes that really put the consumers at the heart would be what makes the difference? I think it's crucial. I mean, I think it's part of a package. I think it's not the only thing that can make a difference. But I think as part of a broader package of, of measures, then I think it's really important. I think if you could get that bit right, and if um, energy suppliers weren't seeing complaint handling, for example, as just a cost and as something which cuts down profit margins, and if they were seeing it much more centrally as an opportunity to help consumers if the regulatory and sort of supervisory framework for energy companies was really pushing them to do a lot more on complaint handling and a lot more on what you were just saying there about putting the kind of consumer's interests at the heart of what they're doing, um, that would make a big difference. I think there are key roles here for regulators and also for ombudsmen in terms of making sure that what's happening in that first tier level of complaint handling um, is going well. So there's something there about sort of designing effective processes. There's something there also about providing guidance, perhaps providing training. And it's something which I think already happens um, in some other contexts. And uh, there are a number of ombudsmen who already do that kind of work. But I think if we want to see a step change in access to justice, and if we want to sort of get away from this idea that maybe about 5% of people are able to access justice directly from an ombudsman, and we want to spread out the kind of justice you might get if you're lucky enough to reach an ombudsman to everybody, then we really need to do as much work as possible um, at that first tier level. There's a, uh, I can't remember the name of the author now, but there's someone that we quote in the book that says that the corporation is the courthouse when it comes to consumer disputes. So in other words, businesses themselves are where most of the, the dispute resolution is happening very few things go beyond that. So I think we have to look within the company as well as looking at uh, local networks and local actors and grassroots organizations if we want to get the kind of access to justice that, that we argue in the book is what, what we should be aiming for. And you also mentioned the, uh, the local uh, aspects of access to justice. And indeed, it seems that the current definition of accessing justice, meaning accessing formal sources of justice, either accessing a court or accessing an ombudsman, which is body that is uh, set up independently of the regulator or the government, that this kind of, let's say, help that people can receive from their uh, communities, whether they are friends or charities or formal or informal help, should be considered as a way to access justice. Am I right? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good um, point and question. And I think what we mentioned in the book that Chris also spoke about just now is that there needs to be ideally this more holistic approach to access to justice, which includes a range of the more formal, the more informal, the community-based. So I think especially when we're talking about more vulnerable groups or marginalized groups, there's a big question of trust and lack of trust in institutions, in 
governments in the state. So, for example, if someone has been not treated properly by the energy company or the energy has been cut off for, for whatever reason, it's for some people it's quite difficult to then actually go to that company to complain, to raise an issue, because they already think that you know the companies are might be against us, the, the government, the state is against us. So here where I think it comes in for different processes work for different people. So that's why I feel that the this local aspect, this community aspect feeds directly into the issue of trust or mistrust. So if if I were someone who were of marginalized and mistrusting of, of authority and government, I'd find it much easier to talk to my local church group or to the person who runs the corner store. And if they were to recommend I go to either the ombudsman or go to this charity to seek help with my problem. So that's why I feel it's, it's very important to have lots of different avenues available for people to to access justice in different forms. Yet there needs to be this overarching togetherness in a way, or this this holistic model where people do know about each other's existence. So at some point, if it's a GP or if it's a local group, that they're able to refer to the right place for people to to escalate that, that help, basically. Also something that I found really interesting in the process or like in the research process is that whatever the country, because we, we looked at the UK, we looked at Spain, in particular, the region of Catalonia, we looked at France, Italy and Bulgaria. So those countries have very different characteristics and the energy market is, is absolutely not at the same level of maturity. But however, we found that this local aspect was important equally important, whatever the country. Were you also surprised to see that? Or were you expecting to see more, let's say, cultural differences? So it's a good question. And I do think we we did find a variety of cultural differences in the way of people approach, you know, their complaints pattern if they're happy to to go come to complain or if they prefer to write letters or if they say nothing so I think there's some cultural aspects to that but you're right that on on that grassroots ground level we did find that that the local support and help was sought no matter what by by certain types of groups in the population and it was really important that that was available And when you just asked me the question, I was reminded one reason that we also chose to look at the the energy sector is that there's overriding European legislation that there needs to be this ADR provision for people to be able to complain and to protect them. So in that sense, where we have the same European-wide legislation that's implemented slightly differently in every member state, to then see how that actually acts out on the ground. So we found that that was really, really interesting. In On the one hand, the diversity, but then equally going back to, to the local level and the importance of, of the communities. Chris, do you want to add to that? 
Yeah, I might just just add a, a little bit to that. Um, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that's emerging, um, and again, it sort of goes back to the point I made earlier about the fact that sometimes, you know, ADR and ombudsman are just seen as a solution. And if you have these things, you know, that kind of magically will sort things out. I think there's a growing recognition that even in relation to accessing what should be the kind of most informal bits of the redress system. So that's complaints processes that are run by energy uh, suppliers in, in this context, that there needs to be some additional support. So there are some, so thinking about the, the UK context, there are some areas, for example, complaints about our national health service, where there is um, specific funding that goes into providing advocacy and support for people who want to make a complaint about their health care. And there's sort of a growing sense that that needs to actually happen in some other contexts as well. For example, social care, perhaps also in housing. And that people, there's a real kind of gap in terms of the sort of support for advice and advocacy that people have. Again, there's a kind of assumption, I think, in policy terms that just people automatically will know how to make a complaint because it should be informal, it should be easy, it should be straightforward. But there's a growing evidence that that really isn't the case and that things that are apparently easy and straightforward forward uh, in the view of policymakers aren't easy and straightforward um, for consumers, particularly the consumers that, that we're interested in here who have certain vulnerable um, characteristics or who find themselves in vulnerable circumstances. So I think that one of the reasons why there's that sort of cross-cutting sense that actually the local is really important and the people are reaching out for um, help and advice at a local level is that there is a kind of gap and there's a gap in kind of thinking around access to justice and thinking look even for these apparently simple informal complaints uh, processes people actually need advice and support about how they make a complaint about how they actually kind of formulate their mm -hmm. Uh, their grievances and generally about who they actually turn to um, often that's just simple things like that they find really really difficult and another potential problem, it didn't come out so strongly in, in the research, but I think one of the um, potential issues is that people often get get sort of lost amongst kind of really poor customer service practices. Um, so things like kind of call centers where people are being sort of passed around or call centers where you have to be on hold for 20 minutes before you actually get to speak to someone. So there's various things like that where I think it can help to have someone who's able to be on site to advise you about what you should do, about how you progress your complaint, about how you make sure that it's being dealt with according to the proper process. And I think those things are, are, are lacking at the moment. Um, and I think that just highlights that importance of having local level advocacy that people can access within their communities. I think that, that is crucial. Yeah, something that we also saw in the research is that usually ombudsmen don't have uh, local offices for people to come and just talk to somebody or they usually have to lodge their complaint in writing. And that can also be quite an issue for people who don't master the language or who might be expressing something or might be telling only parts of the issue or maybe only don't think that the, their issue is worth being mentioned because they can't write about it. They can't really find the right words. We did some some field interviews and many of the, the people we interviewed said, oh, I'm, I'm, they apologize for their language. They said, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't think that I'm expressing myself well. But that is already quite a sign of 
the approach, like the proactivity that ombudsmen have to do, to be, to enforce in their processes, to really be uh, closer to the people's needs. Would you like to comment on that, Naomi? Yeah, thank you for that. I was just thinking about um, some of our interviews that we did in France. And although I do have thoughts on that, I was thinking if I could question back at you, Marvin, because you were the driving force in arranging those interviews. And I wondered if, if you wanted to share something about that. Yeah, I was interested in getting your view, but whatever, I'm, I'm pleased to answer that. And yeah, uh, indeed, I feel that there is still quite some patronizing approach coming from the, the ombudsman scheme in general regarding uh, people who are uh, vulnerable because they are already like the ombudsman services, the different forms of ombudsman are already quite loaded with work and they don't, since they already receive a lot of complaints, they might not see the need why they, they should turn to, to the local level or just take the complaint by phone or have a dedicated service or a dedicated line for people to just say, okay, I'm, I'm facing this problem. I just want to tell it by phone. Can you help me or something like that? So I think that it's still, the ombudsman schemes also have to find something that works for them and for their staff, I think they have to acknowledge that they receive only parts of the issues that may exist. And, and regarding this local level, I mean, I was impressed and amazed by the quality of the people who are working on the field and how passionate they are and how dedicated they are uh, to, to make the world a much better place. Because the help that local uh, charities, organizations provide is going way beyond energy or energy poverty in general. They are they are healing people. They are healing. They are taking time to to listen to all of their problems. They are also taking time to to check up on their, I don't know, on their kids, on their dog, on their health, whatever is important to the person who is vulnerable or who is seeking help. And I find that these local services, this local action, is giving back humanity is giving back dignity uh, to to people who have lost trust in the energy market or in society in general. Great. Now I'm going to say something because I was hoping you were going to have this passionate response. So um, I thought that was much stronger than what, what I was going to say. So I think this is the crucial point and that I totally agree that the amount of effort, and in that case, it was, I think, was Caritas and some, some other charity we saw, the amount of time and effort these people put in to, to visit people, to help them, to even speak on their behalf on the phone, because some of them can't, can't write or really understand a bit more complex connections or express their problem and don't know where to start. The ombudsman or their staff arguably don't have time to go into that much detail, but they're reliant on people to approaching them. So one thing I think that was really important that also came out of our research is, is this idea of, of intermediaries, that at this local level, you have either charities or individuals or other groups that really need to act as intermediaries for those who are less able to be able to, to reach the ombudsman or to reach other forms of help to get their, their problem sorted out. So I think while, if for example, the, the ombudsman process, like most other complaints processes, have to be 
you know, very fast and efficient and I'm only mostly dealt with online and need to see lots and lots of cases of people. There's also an argument to be had to maybe have a specialist, smaller unit within an ombudsman in our example of just dealing with cases on the phone or people that might take a bit longer to do things. So not taking away from their daily business and their their online complaints processes, but actually carving out some space and time and staff to look after those people who are a bit more difficult to reach or who, who need more time. So maybe there could be a future vision of a bit more integrated and, and connected service like that and work closer with these local groups. Yeah, if I could just come in there, Naomi, I think I think that is crucial. And the idea of perhaps sort of integrating a little bit what the Ombudsman uh, and ADL schemes do with what's happening at that local level, I think is, is really important. I think one of the, the potential flaws, I mean, you can see why it is the case from an efficiency perspective, but you um, often have even national or sort of regional Ombudsmen that cover a really wide territory and therefore they have a sort of call centre or fully online model where they're not actually based in the community, so people can't actually go and, and talk to people in the way that they can talk to their local social worker or local citizens advice bureau. So I think there's something about the kind of presence of a, an ombudsman at a local level, or at least working through intermediaries, that can really help. Because a lot of people, I think, particularly when we're talking about vulnerable and energy poor people, I mean, they will live lives that are on a very local level. You know, they they live in their communities and often they won't sort of go very far beyond that so unless there is help there they're not going to find help so i think it's really really key to have to have that kind of sense where you've got better working between the national institutions um, or regional institutions and and local uh, people who can help in the book we talked about we used this concept of relational distance to kind of explain the sort of gap that there was between people on the ground experiencing problems and these kind of formal legal and governmental institutions that were supposedly helping but were so far away that actually people just felt that they were kind of living in different worlds uh, and so part of the kind of trust gap is also i think just the fact of, of these different groups not knowing each other you know, um, the ombudsman are very well-meaning and they want to help vulnerable people. But on the other hand, they really have very little access to the experience of being vulnerable, to the experience of being poor, to the experience of living in, in um, some very dis deprived um, places. And similarly, people who are living in those circumstances, you know, even the most basic kind of formality, and I can't remember in which country this example came from, but um, the idea that signing a consent form to get someone to act on your behalf. As soon as you even mentioned signing a piece of paper, that would just put off a good percentage of the people who might be most in need of help. So any kind of formality can be a barrier, whereas I think most ombudsmen would just consider that a standard part of their process. So there's a really huge gap, I think, between the needs of individuals on the ground and how formal institutions, even apparently kind of less formal institutions like ADR, see the world. And hopefully that's a strong message of the book, that there really needs to be a bridging of those two perspectives if we're going to achieve uh, a better access to justice. Yeah, totally, totally second that. And what do you think could make, um, let's say, long-term difference? This is a question for both of you. And it's from the procedural 
perspective or the overall schemes or even in the, let's say, research and analysis of the whole situation? What could make a difference? So I think part of the answer and that also quite clearly came out of our research is that people and institutions need to work better together, which brings what we've discussed to a point of there needs to be some better understanding of what what they do, better ideas of when, where to find people that might be vulnerable and less able and, and support them. So ideally grow a system that has all these elements that we discussed of being formal and less formal and, and quite local, to have, have systems engage with each other and communicate. There's a lot of, you know, these buzzwords as, as best practice and performance indicators, but there might be a case of looking at certain settings that have a great local community set up in support and helping people access justice and to, to try and identify how that might be translated into different contexts or if that is actually nationally specific. So, and if it only might work in that context. But I think a lot of work would be good if it could be done around how to find models that work and then how to translate that into, into other contexts so there's a better working together and flow of information. I think there is something to be said about the actual processes and procedures, and, and Chris has done much more work than I have on that, so I'll obviously let him talk about that in more detail. But I just wanted to follow up on something I said earlier about everything, these processes mainly being online, some of them on the phone. I think while there's a lot of business as usual in these ombudsman procedures, I think there really needs to be a set amount of money and staff that's dedicated to deal with those people who are less able to access them for whatever reason, to have community outreach, to just spend more time and allow more time for people to access the complaints process of the ombudsman, which as we've discussed, is can be quite alien to those who don't easily find it or know how to, to, how to express themselves and articulate the problem they have. And the last thing I'll say about research in that space, I always think the amazing solution to, to try and explore problems that happen in the real world is actually to, to have a combination of working with practitioners and in this case with local charities together with us academics. And I think that those bring the best outcomes of really being able to empirically understand what people are going through, sit down, interview them, talk to them, immerse yourself in that setting to be able to much better understand the context, to then not only do what us academics have to do as part of our job as publish books and papers, but also influence policy and at the local level, try and find ways of supporting and, and helping in that context that can come out of research. So I to my mind, that's the most beneficial way also for the future to keep addressing problems and issues to actually do some research in the field and, and team up with, with the locals, as it were. All of those are, are excellent suggestions about what needs to change. I mean, I've got a, a couple of points about 
the sort of specific structures that we might want to use, particularly around the ombudsman and how they might work with others. But I think a sort of more fundamental point, I suppose, to start off with is something around the, the functioning of, of energy markets. And some of that, I think, has to do with sort of political decisions about how energy markets are constituted in the first place and then how they're regulated. Because I think, to some extent, a lot of the problems that consumers are facing are fundamentally down to political decisions, really fundamental decisions about how supply is going to happen and um, how the state can be involved in regulating things like affordability and so on. So I think there are some some issues which are bigger than simply saying that let's look at systems of redress and let's look at you know the sort of detail of what regulators and ombudsmen and ADR and courts are doing and it's much more to do with sort of bigger decisions about you know um, do politicians are they really interested in remedying some of the sort of systemic social injustices which give rise to energy um, poverty and which basically mean that people are more likely to find themselves at various points in vulnerable circumstances in their relationship with the energy market. So those, I think, are, are things that are that are quite big and probably come down to political will uh, and perhaps a slight change in the way in which uh, energy markets are perceived. The other thing is this, I'd completely endorse what, what Naomi was saying about having a more sort of systemic and collaborative approach. I mean, I think turning now to, to what Ombudsman and ADR schemes can do specifically, certainly I think they could do quite a lot more to make their own processes simpler. So a lot of the stuff we've already talked about, the things that would just put people off, um, there could be a certain amount of simplification. They could work to make sure that their processes are as accessible as, as, as they can be. And hopefully, if people see that uh, an ombudsman is, is making those efforts, then they'll be more likely to use them. They can do more by way of advertising and working, I think, with the civil society and the third sector to make sure that people know about ombudsmen. We came across quite a few people um, working in the third sector who, even though they would have been in a very good position to refer complaints to the ombudsman, just didn't see it as a viable remedy, either mm -hmm. because they just didn't know enough about what ombudsman did, or they just said that none of our consumers would be interested in going through that kind of route. You know, it takes too long, it's too complicated, the outcomes are too uncertain, you know, it's unclear what the benefit might be of, of going through it. So, Actually, there was, a, there was a big lack of knowledge, even from people who you might assume working in the third sector, being experts in consumer issues and energy issues. Actually, they didn't have a great knowledge about what ombudsman could do for them and their clients. So I think there's an education piece there that could really then strengthen um, the role of ombudsman. And then the final thing, I think, is the ombudsman taking um, and then I'm, I'm using ombudsman to include other forms of ADR here, so just shorthand, taking on a more sort of systemic role. So there examples um, in other contexts, particularly in, in some public service ombudsmen, um, of ombudsmen overseeing complaint handling within and uh, within companies in a much more directive way. So setting complaints procedures, um, overseeing what's kind of happening, providing training, providing um, opportunities for the development of best practice. So really being much more sort of interventionist and kind of supervisory in terms of that approach. And that's not something that's common to a lot of ombudsman or ADR schemes just now. And then the other thing is to, to, to be able to um, carry out systemic investigations. Um, I think one thing that's quite clear is that you can't solve a lot of the problems that consumers are having in a kind of case-by-case 
way, you know, that's not going to lead to big changes. So there needs to be some kind of ability to look across cases, to pick out patterns, to um, look at areas perhaps where complaints aren't coming in, carry out systemic investigations that could lead to much bigger change. And I think we'd envisage those uh, being potentially carried out in collaboration with regulators and, and other people who have a, an interest and role in improving the functioning of energy markets for consumers. But I think that would be an important additional role. And what you could then see is ADR sort of genuinely adding value, not simply for that very small percentage of people who are able to get through to an ADR body, but for as many energy consumers as possible. Yeah, and just to specify, at the moment, many ombudsmen or alternative dispute resolution scheme cannot handle one of the rights that was provided by EU law, which is collective redress to most issues regarding, uh, let's say, collective damage, is about what happened a few years ago with the Volkswagen and other uh, car manufacturing companies, which basically did not said that their cars would have a reduced impact on the environment, and it was completely wrong. And given the fact that there are many countries don't have a collective redress scheme, consumers in general couldn't be compensated for this uh, malpractice. And the European Commission decided to, to set up a new scheme to allow this form of collective redress to happen. And so uh, ombudsmen in general, especially in the energy sector, as far as I know, don't really have the means to to be able to, to deal with this kind of collective disputes or really solve systemic issues. They can do it through recommendations toward policymakers. But as you mentioned, uh, Chris, there is a question of political will. Are political forces uh, willing to hear what the ombudsman has to say? Because the energy sector is way more broad than any other sector. It touches upon the, the, the privacy of the home. It, it touches upon comfort. And as we have seen during the COVID lockdowns, etc., it, it's really about energy is so essential that we, we really need some safeguards and people who look at the situation and, and are here to empower every one of us. Because at the end of the day, we uh, consumers are also citizens with rights. And uh, that's that's why having... Uh, maybe a, a powerful ombudsman figure is is so so important to, as you said, Chris, have uh, complaints perceived as a value and not only as a uh, negative side effect of uh, market practices. I mean, that's just reminded me of another point that I think is quite important is, is for the ombudsman to have more of a, an advocacy role. And by that, I don't mean kind of um, local level advocacy in terms of helping people make complaints, although they might have that role as well, but more sort of policy level advocacy role where actually based on their casework, but also their collaboration with civil society and others, you know, the ombudsman is potentially in a position to have a very vocal voice. And, and I think we came across some ombudsmen who had a very vocal voice in national policy debates. And the Catalan ombudsman, I think, was a very good example of that, that had really taken on a strong advocacy role on energy rights and, and seeing it as a sort of fundamental human right. And I think you can see other contexts where the ombudsman is much more focused on just consumer disputes and looking at individual contractual problems rather than being able to sort of, you know, rise above that almost and have a voice in policy debates and take a sort of strong 
really very customer focused, but also rights based approach to these issues. And and I think that's something that that could be valuable. And you know, there's definitely good practice out there. You see some ombudsmen that really have that role, but it's not spread equally, certainly in the countries we looked at. Yeah, and I think it's it's all the more important that the energy sector is facing uh, enormous transformations. Uh, with the arriving of new market actors and new market practices. So it's it's really important that the Ombudsman or Alternative Dispute Resolution Scheme is one step ahead than, let's say, the regulation or the market practices. Indeed. Naomi, is there anything you would like to add? Thank you very much. I don't think there is. I feel this was a really um, interesting conversation we've had, and I think we've raised all the points that we got out of our research and the, the importance of looking at the consumers and how they can best be helped in in marginalised or vulnerable situations. Can you do some advertising about the book, maybe? Definitely. We have written a book out of this project and um, it will be published by heart and I believe it will come out next month called Access to Justice for Vulnerable and Energy Poor Consumers, Just Energy. And it has everything much more elaborated than we just discussed the the highlights, as it were. Absolutely. I will do that. And we will also uh, make an official presentation of this book at the beginning of September. So uh, please uh, stay tuned and check the uh, social media profile of Just Energy and uh, of Naomi, Chris and myself, of course, to know more about this topic. Chris, is there anything you would like to add? Uh, no, this has been very interesting for me. It's reminded me about uh, why this was such an exciting project and good things we wrote about the book, which is which is useful. Um, so no, no, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, great. The book is called Access to Justice for uh, Vulnerable and Energy Poor Consumers, uh, Just Energy, and it will be released uh, in uh, July 2021. Uh, the uh, edition is Heart. Uh, Naomi, uh, Chris, and Rachel McPherson uh, and, and I are the uh, the author of this book, and we are really looking forward to presenting it to the to the world. Oh, and also something important: uh, at the beginning of September, we will also be presenting a toolkit that we have made around the findings of this book and of this project. And this toolkit is really designed at alternative dispute resolution providers or providers of of redress, of justice, to become allies to to really overcome energy poverty. Anything on this? Yes. Well, as as you said, we're going to launch the toolkit, which is really exciting because there's something practical um, coming out of our project. And I was just trying to look at the date we're going to launch it and share it widely and hope that it's helpful for practitioners to understand and implement vulnerability and how to deal with with people that are less able and and possibly vulnerable in their day-to-day lives. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Naomi. Thank you so much, Chris. It has been a pleasure to have you uh, with me on Energetic. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the launch of the book and I'm really excited about your next project. (laughs) Thank you, Marine. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Naomi. Naomi Kritzfeld, Chris Gill, Rachel McPherson and I are the author of a book called Access to Justice for Vulnerable and Energy Poor Consumers, Just Energy. And I will be putting the link of the book in the show notes. 
thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.